Welcome to the Less Doing Podcast, where you will learn how to start living more by doing less. Let me help you optimize, automate, and outsource your entire life so you can focus on doing the things you love. Now here's your host, Ari Mizell. So Steve Glaveski, thank you for joining me all the way from Melbourne, Australia. How are you this uh, morning? Uh, I'm fantastic. How about yourself, Ari? Thanks for having me. Uh, my pleasure. Now, to be fair, uh, well, not be fair, but to let the audience know, I just had an almost an hour-long conversation with Steve <laughs> on his podcast, so I am totally warmed up. And Steve, you got all my good stuff on your podcast, so you're going to have to really... I'm going to have to bring it. I'm gonna, don't worry, man. I'm going to dig deep with this one. <laughs> so let's talk about you. I mean, you, you do a lot of different things mm-hmm. and you've been involved in a lot of different aspects of entrepreneurship. So the main focus right now is Collective Campus. That's right. So let's talk about that. So what's Collective Campus? Sure. So, I mean, Collective Campus is a corporate innovation and startup accelerator. I founded about three and a half years ago. Basically, at our core, we're about unlocking the latent potential of people to create more impact and ultimately not just create impact, but to live more fulfilling lives. Because, you know, I spent about eight years in the corporate world with brands like EY, KPMG, Macquarie Bank. And while you would say that I was living in accordance with society's expectations and what society defines as success, I was ultimately miserable because the way the systems and processes were set up was all about doing work that didn't really align with any purpose. So I found myself not learning. I found myself uh, doing work that was basically like making recommendations to help a large listed organization comply with their SEC obligations. Those recommendations not being implemented and then having to come back the following year to make the same recommendations again and again and again. So while I had all these ideas and I was an int- frustrated entrepreneur, none of those ideas were basically supported because people in their positions were incentivized to just keep the status quo um, as it was. Um, so fast track many years, I went down the entrepreneurial route and I decided that, hey, corporates can learn a hell of a lot from the way successful startups apply themselves. And that's just not when it comes to coming up with ideas and testing their ideas, but it's also around how they actually go about managing their time so they get the most out of their days. And how did you learn how to share that? Like what what put you in a position that you were able to provide that kind of guidance? Sure. I mean, I guess very few people that I know have had the experience across both sides of the fence. I mean, I spent time in government, working for big listed organizations, working for big private consultancies. Uh, for about eight years. And then the other side of the fence, I spent about five years in the startup domain, uh, building out a platform called Hotdesk, which was an office sharing platform and working in a few other areas. Um, And so I basically devoured absolutely every single piece of content that you could find on entrepreneurship. Maybe not every single piece, that's an absolute. I try to steer clear of absolutes, but you know what I'm saying, content, uh, books, podcasts, audio books. And we basically got to a point where we believe that we could do this much better than what the corporates could do, um, at least when it came to the early stage innovation stuff. And like most things, you need to do it better than them. You don't need to be an expert. And what we were doing initially was not saying, hey, we know how to solve your problems. We basically came to these organizations and said, look, we know what the tools are. We know what the techniques are, the methodologies. We can help you apply them um, to suit your own context to get value out of them. So that, that's what it was really all about. Um, we were never positioning ourselves as experts. It was more so around, we've done the work. Now we can help you learn what you need to learn. 
Yeah, so it's it's funny because a lot of times with my clients, I always like to say like I, I don't have all the answers, but I'll I'll figure it out. And yeah, and I'm an experimentation laboratory, so we can try things, and if it works, then then it'll work for you. So, which is a really unique situation to be in. Not, well, not sorry, it's not unique. It's more that it's it's a really fortunate situation to be in that we get that freedom. Mm. Oh, definitely, and and the freedom piece is so big because if I look back to you know, the time in the corporate world where, like I said, had all these ideas, but you just weren't getting the buy-in to do them. And also the freedom to plan out your day as you wish. Because if I look at your typical corporate executive, they spend a lot of time on things that they don't actually want to spend the time on. Like for example, they'll attend a lot of meetings throughout the day, usually defaulting to one hour meetings. There's this expectation on them by leadership, by clients that they will respond to an email within, you know, 10 minutes, oftentimes. Oftentimes, they think that's the expectation, but it's not really. But there is this cultural stigma around it. We've got to be responsive. Otherwise, our client's going to go down the road and work with one of our competitors. Uh, I mean, if your client's going to leave because you didn't respond to an email in 15 minutes, that says volumes about perhaps your quality of work, the relationship you've developed with them. And also, they don't sound like a great client to be working with. Um, but the way executives spend their time, there is absolutely no freedom in that. Um, constantly checking email, constantly responding to email, saying yes to almost everything that they should be saying no to, not pr- prioritizing what they work on, um, and also multitasking like crazy, where they're constantly suffering the cognitive switching penalties. So what you have is people in these organizations who are working 10, 12, 14 hours a day, and come the end of the day, they haven't actually gotten anything done. Yeah, well, and that's the the majority of people that we see in a lot of corporate situations, unfortunately, and they're not in a position necessarily to try to even question that system. Now, for so for for your book, Employed Entrepreneur, do you do, do you think that this applies to a lot more people than we might think? And what I mean by that is that a lot of people would say that entrepreneurship is not something that you learn; it's something that you are or you're not. So mm. it, it, how often you see that, that somebody want, like is an employee, they want to be an entrepreneur, or they think they want to be an entrepreneur, but they just, they can't, or they don't know how. Yeah, it's a, it's a great question. And uh, that's why this book came about, because in the space that we work in, with the corporate innovation space, a lot of my clients um, basically have asked me, hey, Steve, I've got this idea. I don't know how to go about it. Uh, I'd love to do what you do. You've got the freedom to do your own thing but I'm scared. I've got a mortgage to pay off. I've got kids in private school, all this sort of stuff. And so there are different people along that spectrum from your risk-taking brash entrepreneur to someone who likes familiarity and comfort and certainty. And whether people are, whether entrepreneurs are born or made is a great point because while I'm a big believer in the environment dictating your behavior and how you show up on a daily basis, and if you can hack your environment, you can hack your behavior and then ultimately you get results from that. Studies out of um, the University of Sydney recently, there's a study called Blue Brain, Red Brain, which found that certain people, when they're assessing risk, their amygdala lights up like a Christmas tree, which means they are much less likely to strive in a high-risk situation or thrive in a high-risk situation, um, such as entrepreneurship, whereas other people have, uh, their amygdala doesn't light up anywhere near as much. So that threat detection part of their brain doesn't light up when they're assessing risk as much as it does with other people. So red brain is super risk averse. Blue brain, however, we're happy to take take a punt. Um, So biologically, there are things that give you a predisposition towards entrepreneurship, but then also your environment. Does your environment, your upbringing, your past experiences lend themselves to the behaviors that entrepreneurs have, which 
are things like uh, challenging the status quo, taking risk, uh, experimentation, like you've said earlier. Um, so really it comes down to those underlying uh, behavioral traits and whether or not you have them. Well, the other thing for me with with the freedom aspect is that I think that there's people who are on, who are employees and they, they're seeking freedom, but there's the, the liberty paradox, which shows us that there's positive and negative freedoms. There's freedom from something, which is what a lot of these employees are looking for, right? But a lot of entrepreneurs are actually looking for freedom to do certain things. And I think that's an important distinction mm. between them. And also, yeah, yeah. Sorry. And, and also, one other thing about it is that there's a difference between being an entrepreneur and owning your own job. Yeah, exactly. And I think uh, too many people who are looking for freedom from something see entrepreneurship as the vehicle to get them there. Uh, but oftentimes, if they're looking for freedom from their job, from their boss, uh, from work that they don't particularly enjoy, there are easier and better ways to go about getting that freedom. It could be a matter of just finding a job somewhere else. Um, it could be a lateral move within that organization. It could just be about having a conversation with the powers that be to just redesign what your working environment uh, or reality looks like. Um, I think a lot of people just jump to conclusions and become entrepreneurs and then later on realize just how difficult it is and that they actually haven't, re haven't earned freedom from much. In fact, they're probably working longer days because they haven't learned how to manage their time effectively. So um, it's a matter of really reflecting on why you want to do it and assessing the alternatives before you make that jump as well. Do you see that there are particular kinds of businesses or rather kinds of industries that people tend to jump into? Like do a lot of these employees go and start becoming freelancers or do you, do some of them actually just like actual launch real companies? Uh, it depends on the person, of course. I mean, certain people coming out of say banking might come up with some sort of uh, fintech idea. But one thing that I see a little bit too often is people building marketplaces. So your Airbnb for X, your Airbnb for Y. And the problem with that is people think it's just, oh, well, it worked for Airbnb. It's really easy. Let's just yeah. get a script and build the supply side and, and then we'll build the demand side. But building a marketplace is like 10 times harder than building a single-sided market because not only do you need to figure out the value proposition, the distribution channel, the, the language you're going to use, the marketing channels, all that stuff for one side of the market, the price point especially, you need to figure that out for the other side of the market. And then you need to bring that together and it needs to align perfectly like the cosmos needs to align. And it is just really, really difficult. And for every successful marketplace, you probably have, and this is you know stat, it's not really a statistic, but for every successful marketplace, I definitely see 10 times more that have failed. Um, and it's a lot easier said than done. And, and people look at the success of Uber, they look at the success of uh, Airbnb, but even those businesses had their challenges. I mean, Airbnb made $200 a week in their first year uh, and they were rejected uh, by numerous venture capitalists who didn't see the market opportunity. And even Y Combinator, the incubator that they eventually got into, rejected them because they didn't see the opportunity either when they first started out. So marketplaces seem to be the go-to for a lot of first-time entrepreneurs, but they are not the easiest way to go about. Well, they are the, one of the most challenging things you can do. And I know so because I tried building one many years ago and it was very, very difficult. Do you see certain traits in the people that successfully make the jump versus those that don't? Oh uh, yeah. Uh, so a big one is uh, how they deal with discomfort or adversity. Um, and how have they dealt with that in their lives up until that point? I mean, have they had to deal with adversity by way of some unfortunate circumstances outside of their control, whether it was um, to do with a loved one, whether it was getting fired from a job, whether it was some sort of uh, sickness that they um, 
became subject to. There's lots of different things. And how did they deal with that? Did they just cave or did they find a way to persevere? Um, also, do they demonstrate the desire to put themselves into situations where they are being challenged? For example, um, one thing that I've been doing uh, regularly is throwing myself into unfamiliar situations where uh, you know the ego is being challenged and I try to numb my ego as much as possible, but I do things like I'll get up onto a stand-up comedy stage, which is something I started doing recently. And even though I've done keynotes for you know conferences and things of that persuasion in front of like 200 people, 300 people, put me in front of 20 people in some smoky back bar in, a, in some pub somewhere and everybody's just waiting for you to make them laugh. That is crazy confronting. And I do that not because I think I want to make a career in, in stand-up comedy. That's definitely not the case. But just putting yourself out there into those situations, I think people who get comfortable doing that make great entrepreneurs because entrepreneurship is very much about hearing no and saying no. Um, you're going to get rejected particularly during the first few months, if not years of your business, because you haven't built up the collateral, the brand, the resources, the, the content, whatever it is. And so people just won't trust you. You're going to hear no a hell of a lot for every, um, you know, in my case, um, sometimes I hear no 20 times before I get to that yes. And that's just the way it is. But also getting good at saying no in terms of not chasing every furry rabbit down every rabbit hole, because then you just end up spreading yourself really, really thin. Um, some of the other things, I mean, and it ties in with adversity is persistence. And it was former US president, Calvin Coolidge, I think. No, it was definitely him who said, nothing in this world will take the place of persistence. Talent cannot, genius cannot, education cannot. Tal uh, persistence alone trumps all. And I think that was just so profound. And it doesn't matter how good your idea is, how good your team is, how much capital you have, you're going to face adversity. You're going to face challenge. So you just need to persist, persist, persist. And then some of the other things that come out of some research from um, the likes of Clayton Christensen in his book, The Innovator's DNA, he talks a lot about challenging the status quo, um, connecting the dots between lots of past experiences. So people who have broad experiences, have worked across different industries, have read a lot of books across a lot of different topics and maybe hung out with lots of different people, they're in a much better position to come up with a breakthrough idea because innovation usually happens um, at the intersections. And then just finally, people who are willing to just try things, experiment, adapt, uh, people who are okay uh, with failure. I think they're some of the key attributes that underpin uh, whether or not someone has a chance of being a successful entrepreneur. Uh, but if you shy away from failure, if you don't like these uncomfortable situations, if you're the kind of person that quits easily once the going gets tough, then entrepreneurship might not be for you. Um, uh, I, I think that's, that's uh, very well said. And I, I, I like that a lot because you find people who become entrepreneurs when they shouldn't. And you find people who are entrepreneur or are employees in a very temporary way. And, and like mm -hmm. I've worked for probably a dozen different companies and I was a terrible employee. Um, so in some ways I feel like entrepreneurship for me was the only option mm -hmm. I was unemployable. But, uh, <laughs> clearly I don't know how to say no to, or not, I don't know how to stop on things either. So I, I, I think that's a really important distinction. So, well, so what do you think has put some of those people, the ones who have those qualities, what do you think has put them in that place of being an employee in the first place? Just societal expectations, as you sort of mentioned before? Yeah, definitely. I mean, if I look at my own story, I mean, I grew up, I played in rock bands in my teen years. I had long hair down to my waist. I was always creative, writing music, all that sort of stuff. And I guess societal expectation, uh, family expectations uh, just pushed me down the corporate route. And, you know, my hair got shorter, my days got longer in the corporate world. And I very soon found myself wearing a Windsor knot with 
you know, tie it up nice and tight as you do, uh, the three-piece suit, all that fun stuff. Um, and I guess we're forced to, it comes back to this philosophical quote that I quite, quite resonate with, which is, if you live in accordance with people's opinions, you'll never be rich. But if you live in accordance with nature, you'll never be poor. So what is your nature? I mean, what's going to make you happy? And it comes to mind, uh, a quote from Atlas Shrugged also comes to mind uh, from Ayn Rand, in which she says, happiness is the achievement of your values. And I think too many people don't take the time to reflect on what those values actually are. Uh, what's what's going to make them happy? What's going to make them fulfilled? Usually they make decisions based on what fam- what's going to make the family fulfilled? What does society expect of me? What's going to make me feel like I'm good enough? And usually that means going down the corporate route, looking for that six-figure salary, uh, the nice house, a nice car. But more often than not, um, it leaves them feeling miserable. And, and you know, there's research out there on that as well. I think it's called the arrival fallacy, where you work really hard to get to this position that society is telling you is going to make you happy. And you get there and, well, lo and behold, you're not happy. Yeah. <laughs> well, but I, the thing is that I think that that's a quality that we often see entrepreneurs as well, where they can't celebrate wins. Mm, yeah. And that's that's... That's true, man. It's a, it's a bit of a paradox. And I think it's also comes back to a lot of this stuff we're hearing. And I think we discussed this on my podcast, you know, the whole Gary Vaynerchuk, hustle, 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 grind, 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 keep, keep growing your business, like taking a moment to reflect on what does success look like for you? Um, you know, a lot of people listening to this out there who may read TechCrunch and Mashable and all these websites might conflate success as an entrepreneur with raising a big bag of money and maybe becoming a startup that's got a valuation of several hundred million dollars. But oftentimes what happens when you raise a big bag of money is it's no longer your business. It's someone else's business. And that person who gave you a big bag of money, that doesn't mean that your idea is valid. They're just placing a bet on your business. Your business is now someone else's bet. As Jason Fried said on my podcast a couple of weeks ago, you're now a financial instrument. So really reflecting on those values, what, what's going to make you happy, whether you're an employee or whether you are an entrepreneur, that way you don't lose sight of what is enough because you can just keep chasing and chasing and chasing. And um, you know, our business recently made it into the top 100 fastest growing new companies in Australia. And we were excited about that. And we took the time to celebrate that fact. And we took the time to reflect on what brought us there and all the challenges we had growing the business. It wasn't a matter of, okay, cool. We made the list. Now let's go for top 50 next year. Cause then you never really take the time to just enjoy the fruits of your labor. And I think people could just derive so much more, just a greater sense of contentment with where they're at just by reflecting a little bit more on how far they've come. Yeah, absolutely. I I think that that's the, the most important point there is it's not so much like, oh, let's celebrate the wins. Let's high five each other. That's not the point. It's if you don't recognize mm. how you got to where you are, then it's really hard to consistently grow. Exactly. Exactly. Reflecting is a big thing, particularly on the low points. Um, a lot of people, I think, when they have a negative uh, situation in their business, will make excuses, will try to brush it underneath the carpet. But I think your business can derive a lot of benefit and character formation in its people by confronting those issues head on. So, we have had countless challenges, one of which was when we delivered a four-week um, training program for a large law firm. This was our first big client, and we proceeded to royally stuff it up to the point where three weeks in, they felt like they weren't getting any value. It was all theoretical. There wasn't any prac. And rather than say, well, that's what you guys signed up for. I don't know what, what you mean, or just say sorry, 
we reflected on everything that we did throughout that customer's journey with us and what could have been better. And then we went back to them saying, look, this is how we stuffed up. Here's how we propose making it better. We ended up adding two weeks onto the program. We ran a face-to-face skills consolidation session, we called it, in Sydney and Melbourne at our own cost. But come the end of that program, most of the participants agreed to provide a positive video testimonial. We got a net promoter score of something like 50, and that client has continued to work with us. And on the back of that work, we were able to close a lot of deals with other law firms who said, hey, you've worked with them. But it came down to taking ownership um, and learning from those negative um, situations, those downtimes in the business, those challenges, um, rather than sweeping them under the carpet. All right. So last question that I always like to ask in these interviews, what are your top three pieces of advice for people to be more effective? Mm-hmm. Uh, great question. So I know your your whole thing, Ari, is um, optimize, auto, outsource, automate. I usually say prioritize, outsource, automate, but I'm going to say something else, some actionable takeaways that you guess or your listeners can take out of this. Uh, one would be uh, we waste a lot of time checking email. And when we check email, we tend to respond to emails that are waiting for us rather than say sending an email we we're planning to send. So what I would do if you're using Chrome, if you're not, you should be uh, get the, there's a plugin called Compose Email which means that you will just open the compose email window. You won't get distracted by your inbox. You won't go chasing fairy rabbits down rabbit holes and you won't wonder what you were doing 30 minutes later. So you just compose the email you needed to compose, send it, you don't see your inbox and you keep moving forward. Um, Second, just turning off notifications, all of them, whether it's on your desktop, whether it's on your smartphone. Otherwise, even if you don't click into a notification, you will still suffer the cognitive switching penalty because You might see a little message pop up on your phone and then you start thinking about that message and then just to bring yourself back into whatever you're doing, it takes time to to bring yourself back. Um, And then finally, just doing the bare minimum to build momentum. So in my case, I write a lot of articles. Um, you know, I published this book, uh, which comes out in January, and that was about 75,000 words. And if I went into that thinking, wow, I've got to write 75,000 words, that would have been incredibly daunting and confronting and I probably would not have been able to scale that mountain and would have kept procrastinating. But what I did was, well, I'm just going to start. I'm just going to write a few hundred words. I don't care how crappy they are. Um, and I'm not going to go into say reference checking mode. I'm going to wait for that. I'm going to batch that at the end. So just making a start, whatever it is that you're doing, I think you just start to build momentum. Uh, you start to give your brain a little bit of a dopamine hit uh, because you're getting that sense of achievement, of progress. And then you'd be surprised how far you can go. And that you know, few hundred words you wrote can quickly become several thousand. Right. Those are, those are awesome. I always love asking that question, not only because I get good answers, but I always get different answers. So uh, thank you so much for your time. Where can people find out more about you? And of course, listen to your podcast. Sure. So they can find out more about me um, at steveglaveski.com um, and also find out more about the book at employeetoentrepreneur.io where they can download a bunch of, uh, well, they can download the bonus bundle, which has a whole stack of resources in there on sales, marketing, uh, testing your idea, and also optimizing your time. Um, but in terms of the podcast, you know, we're 296 episodes in now it's called future squared. I've interviewed everyone from, you know, Adam Grant to Kevin Kelly, to Brad Fell to Gretchen Rubin. It's been an absolute blast and people can find that wherever they listen to their podcasts, as well as at futuresquared.xyz. Thank you so much. Thanks for listening to the less doing podcast at less doing. We help entrepreneurs who have opportunity in excess of what their infrastructure can support to set up systems and processes that empower a team 
to ultimately make themselves more replaceable. That way they can optimize, automate, and outsource everything in their businesses in order to be more effective. If you want to find out more about Less Doing, the podcast, the blog, the books, and all of the wonderful programs we offer to help you get from where you are to where you know you want to be, go to lessdoing.com slash podcast and check out our OAO blueprint so you can get started today.